Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. to look at the, um, uh, the decree, the letter that was sent out as a result of the Jerusalem Council, I want to let you know that this confuses Bible scholars. Um, not that we're confused as to what it means. That's, that's pretty simple and straightforward. He says, no idolatry, eat kosher, and no sexual immorality. That's it, pretty much. That's not the confusing part. The confusing part is, well, once they settled the issue, why did it keep coming back up? You know, the Jerusalem Council uh, comes to this, this understanding, and uh, before you know it, in, in the churches in Galatia, uh, the, the issue comes back up. It seems to have been somewhat underlying uh, in uh, the Roman situation, as Paul wrote the, the letter to the Romans. So uh, there, there's a little bit of wondering and trying to figure out, well, exactly how did this pan out in the life of the church? Uh, uh, most of, of the commentary on this passage of Scripture will tell you that um, this was a compromise, that you had Jewish Christians who really wanted to be Jewish and keep a kosher house and, and all those things, and you had the Gentile Christians who really just wanted to be Gentiles and, uh, and believe in Jesus. And the question was, how could they get along? And uh, James comes up with this compromise where he says, well, uh, why don't the Gentiles just sort of be half-Jewish? Uh, uh, keep a kosher diet plate, uh, and uh, don't, don't offend your, your fellow Christians who happen to be Jewish. I, I think that misreads the Scripture. I don't think James was looking for a compromise here. I think what was really motivating James was the understanding that um, the basic meaning of living life as a Christian was as, at, at stake here. Every bit as much for Paul, the issue was salvation by grace appropriated through faith. The issue for James was, how does this encounter with Jesus Christ, now he is Lord, now he is Savior, how does that pan out in your life? What should your life look like now? And the Jewish Christians were saying, well, you should look like a Jew. Uh, after all, we're Jewish. God sent the Messiah to the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. Uh, it was good enough for us. Why not good enough for you? So why don't you Gentiles join our Jewish world? And the other side of the equation was, well, no, actually, uh, for freedom, Christ has set us free, free from the law, happy condition, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, why not uh, let the Jews understand that we have freedom from the law in Christ? Why don't the Jews join us in the Gentile world? And it's not that James says, well, why don't we combine the worlds and just sort of overlap? What James says is, we're not going to join the Jewish world, and we're not going to join the Gentile pagan world. We're going to join the kingdom of God. And it's God's world and God's understanding and God's um, sort of uh, uh, painting of the picture of life. That's what we are going to have as we live as Christians. So I think that's what we're looking at here. Which, of course, led me to think about leisure suits. I have a terrible confession to make. I used to wear leisure suits. Some of you don't know what leisure suits are. They were polyester's curse on the human race. I mean, 
it was uh, you know it was in 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 the uh, in the guise of looking really cool because we just come out of the hippie thing with the fringes and all that. Um, by the way, I used to borrow my roommate's uh, jacket that had fringes on the. Okay, <laughs> not proud of it. I'm just saying it happened. But uh, the idea of wearing leisure suits is that we were like really cool. You know, we we were with it. Oh, come on, be honest. You did too, didn't you? Some of you. You know, if, you, if you're anywhere close to my age, you know, you don't, it's not, it's not a historical oddity to you. It's, it's an experience, right? You, you wore leisure suits. Now, the, what I got to thinking about was, why did we ever wear those things? I mean, why did, why did we ever put them on? I'll tell you why. I had to wear one because you were wearing one. I mean, I had to wear this, this, this ugly thing, thinking I was, you know, I made it look good, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> but I had to wear this ugly thing because everybody else was wearing the ugly thing, and I wouldn't fit in if I did not. I'm just going to tell you it's a case where I allowed my life to be shaped and formed by the things going on around me that other people were doing because it looked okay for them, why not for me? In other words, it, it was a case of taking my cues from the world, thank you very much, and not from necessarily Christ. I mean, I didn't even put Christ into the equation. I, I'm telling you, I, I did not spend a moment of prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, should I wear a, la a leisure suit or not? I, it, that just didn't happen. Now, you know, it, with leisure suits, it's not a matter of sin. Well, maybe it is a matter of sin. I don't know. But, but with leisure suits, it's fairly humorous. But the problem is when we start looking at the world and we take our cues from the world and we are shaped by the world in matters of morality, when it comes to how we raise children, our expectations of marriage, what our values are, how we view justice in the world, if we are being shaped by the world and not by Christ, we are just doing a leisure, leisure suit mentality and we're just going along with the world. And the wonder of Christ is that he came to set us free from the world. He came to set us free from being kicked around and shoved around, shackled and chained and imprisoned by the world's values and the world's mentality. He came to set us free from all that. Now, James, listening to this discussion about Jews and Gentiles and what we should do, I think James just gravitated to the point where he said, no, the issue, issue isn't Jew or Gentile. The issue is whether or not Christ is Lord. The issue is whether or not your life is being shaped and formed by Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter whether it's the religion of the Jews or the practices of a pagan Gentile world. The ultimate question is, are you pointed to Christ? And so when he gets up in front of these folks and he says, look, here's, here's what I've decided we ought to do these things, it is his way of articulating what that Christ-centered focus is going to look like. And I want for us to read it that way because it still speaks to us today because we are so much enslaved to this, this insane pursuit of what is modern. And we call it modern or postmodern. But the fact is we're just trying to be in the times, and so we're tracing modernity. Folks, we need to be chasing eternity, not modernity. All right. 
So let's see what James has to say. Let's, uh, let's pick it up in verse uh, 19. By the way, <laughs> James, the brother of Jesus, is speaking here. James grew up with Jesus. Saw him every day, big brother, part of the family. James grew up with Jesus. But it took a while, a long time, for James to come to Jesus. He grew up with Jesus, saw him, heard him, all those things. But you remember the scripture that said one time Jesus was preaching and his family showed up? His family said, uh, he's a little bit off the rocker. Let us take him someplace where he can get a good rest. Maybe we, you know, we can put him back on track. Uh, This guy's nuts. And that's the time Jesus said, no, my family are those who believe in me. You remember that? So James, uh, all I want from that is that, that James early on in the ministry of Jesus, didn't get it. He had grown up with Jesus, but it took him a while to come to Jesus. Evidently, something happened in the life of James. Something happened that shook his world, and he said, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus, my brother, he's actually the Son of God. He's actually King of kings and Lord of lords. He's actually the Savior. He's actually the Messiah. Something happened, resurrection. So something turned James around. Now, there's a whole sermon in that about growing up with Jesus and not coming to Jesus, and i leave that for another time. But James gets up, and he's become sort of the focal point of the uh, Jerusalem church, and here's what he says. He says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He says, My judgment is that we should remember this is all about grace, not works. This is all about what Christ has done for us on the cross. This is all about God's grace flowing into our lives because of the sacrifice of Jesus. My judgment is we should not add the troublesome burdens of works to this experience of grace. I said, sure, we could do that. We could take Judaism. We could take the tradition We could take the customs of the Jewish people and we could overlay that on top of all these people. By the way, you remember, we can't keep all the laws ourselves. By the way, understand this thing has sometimes been a burden to us. Understand that that we're not capable of living up to it, but sure, we could put it on top of them. But my judgment is that grace is greater than the works of man and grace is greater than the religion of man. And God isn't interested about your religious practices. God is interested in your faith in Jesus Christ. So James says, let's not trouble them anymore. Let's not make more of this than it should be. Let's leave it on the level of grace. So as we're going through the rest of this uh, advice that, that James gives to the church, and it was adopted, as we're going through the rest of it, remember, this is not to put a burden on the Gentiles. This is simply to show them what it looks like when you're sold out to Jesus Christ. What it looks like when Jesus Christ is absolutely dominant in your head and your mind, your, your, your sight, that everything about you is just, just dominated by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, it's more by way of explanation and illustration than it is a, a matter of, of, of placing a burden on these folks. So he says, let's, let's not put a burden, any more burden on these Gentiles as they turn to God. But let's write to them and let's, let's show them what it looks like. And here's what it looks like. That they should abstain from things polluted by idols. 
Now, the easiest understanding of that is that this is the old food sacrifice to idols thing. You remember this, that um, uh, if you went to somebody's house for dinner, if they were a pagan, they probably had sacrificed a part of the dinner to the household gods. You know, everybody, every house had their own gods. They had a little box, and they kept the gods in them. Uh, we know this because we've, uh, they, they have been dug up in Pompeii, you know, and they go into the houses and they find the little household gods. They look like action figures. And they would put them there, and they would sacrifice some of your dinner to uh, the, the gods. And so if you ate dinner with a, with a pagan, they, you know, they, they said, well, they, you know, this is a great thing. You're helping me honor the gods because we're eating this food sacrifice uh, to these idols. And the question was, well, we know the idols are nothing. And we know that there's, there's no reality to, to, the, to the idols. There's only one God. Um, but by participating in this sort of uh, mindset, uh, are, are, are we encouraging this other person to latch on to an idol and so forth? So a very simple level, uh, James is saying, well, we, we, we are uh, just writing to you that you would not participate in this sort of mindless uh, uh, kind of thing of eating food, sacrificed to idols, and things like that. So that, that's one way. But it actually goes a little deeper than that. When, when James says, abstain from the pollution of idols, various ways to translate that word, you have to understand that in the ancient world, you could not turn around and spit without hitting an idol. Just wherever you were. If you went into the marketplace, there were idols. You wanted to buy something, it had been sacrificed to idols. Went to somebody's house, idol worship. You wanted a job, you wanted to tr join a trade union or a guild. Well, that took place in some temple to an idol, and you had to partake in the, uh, the, the meal, the, the guild, the fellowship, sacrifice to the idol. So if you wanted a job, you had to, uh, had to give in to the idolatrous sort of uh, mindset. If you, if you wanted to go in the marketplace, if you wanted to uh, have fellowship with your neighbors, all of this was dominated by, by the concept of idols, the idea that there are gods floating out there, and your job was to keep them happy so they didn't zap you. And James says, I love you guys so much that I want to set you free from this bondage to idols where every step you make, you're trying to figure out how you can placate a God who's mad at you. I want to set you free from this bondage to idols that will suck you in to living just like the rest of the world and you'll never know the glory of freedom in Christ. So, so, so abstain from this, this connection to things polluted by the idol mindset. You see, because there is one overriding question above all this, and it's simply this, what is your life about? Now, to the pagan, your life was about getting through the day without making God mad at you, or one of the gods mad at you. If you're a pagan, your life was about being accepted by your community so they wouldn't get upset at you and kick you out of your house. As a pagan, your job was to try to uh, entertain yourself or, or divert yourself so you didn't think about the mindless way you were living. If you were a pagan, it was a pretty low level of, of existence, and it was kept that way because people did not know the true and living God. And James says, abstain from this. Withdraw from that. Because what is your life about? The glory of God. And not just any God. Not just pick the God you need at the moment. You know, if you're a pagan, you're going to pick the God of healing, Asclepius. If, you, you know, if you're sick, you're going to 
I was going to talk about Athena, but uh, anyway, you just, uh, uh, you, you pick the God you need at the, at the moment. No, he says, what is your life about? It's about the glory of God. Which God? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who raised him from the dead. Which God are we talking about? We're talking about the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. We're talking about the God who created the universe and who is sovereign over all that exists. In other words, what James is saying is, you were created for the glory of God. Don't distort that. Don't twist it. Don't change it. Don't bend it. Just be focused totally on the glory of God in your life. I mean, can you look at your life right now and you say, you know, what, the, some of the nutty things I'm doing, a lot of it's because I'm trying to please the world. I'm trying to get along with my culture. I'm trying to get along with my society. So often what we're doing is we're looking at, at, at the people around us saying, well, what are they doing? I'll do the same thing. And that's sort of an idolatrous approach to life that something, someone else has taken the place of God's sovereignty and we're no longer living for God's glory, we're living for self. So James says, I want you to abstain from that, that, that idolatry because you were created for the glory of God, therefore no idols. Then the second thing he says, and from sexual immorality. Now understand that when James talked about sexual immorality, he was thinking of things that the pagan world said were normal, healthy, desirable, commendable, that it wasn't a matter of ethics of sin and what you should do or not, but rather the whole realm of sex dominating the pagan world was just all about whatever, especially if you're a person in power. But James knew good and well that when God created Adam and Eve, the first thing he said to them was, be fruitful and multiply. What was he saying? He was saying, this sexual urge that I have created in you and it's wired into your DNA. It was wired into Adam and Eve. God didn't have to tell them, have sexual desire for each other. I mean, that was just laced into who they were. But God said, understand that this, this very strong, powerful dynamic in your life is meant to bring you together as husband and wife so that the children who are born will have a mother and a father who are bound together to one another in love, desire, and affection so that of all things, the children will grow up knowing their father and their mother. See, that was God's plan. And the human race ever since then has been distorting it and changing it because we're out of control, folks, that's, that's basically it. But when he says, and abstain from sexual morality, he's saying, take this very basic need, this basic desire, this, this powerful dynamic in life, and understand that God is sovereign Lord over this desire. Now, in the pagan world, nobody would understand that. I mean, that, that society, those, the, that, that culture was, was just laced with sexuality. Everything was sold with sex. Everything was related to sex. Uh, it, you know, by the time, uh, they, they probably had classes where they were trying to teach five-year-olds about sex education. Wouldn't happen now that way, but back then that was happening. And James says, when it comes to the area of this 
gracious gift of God, understand that God has a plan. And your job is to, to find it, to go with it. Because the question is, what are you becoming? What is it that your life is taking you to be? Is it taking you to be a self-centered, self-indulgent, pleasure-driven um, person whose whole life is consumed by whether it's sex or some, some other entertainment or some other value, money, sex, power of the same sort? Is that stuff just, just kicking you around and, 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 and hitting on you all the time? Or is your life focused on Christ so that he is sovereign over every area of your life? Because what is, is it that your life is becoming? And the Bible's answer is you are to become just like Jesus. That's what God is doing. He is conforming your life to the image of his dear son. And when James says, abstain from sexual immorality, he's just saying, look, be like Jesus Christ, obedient to the Father, fulfilling God's plan and destiny and will for your life, particularly in this very powerful area of life. I don't want you, James would say, I don't want you to be chained to the immorality of the world. You think it's good. You think other people are having a better time of it. You think you're missing out on something. But God doesn't withhold any good thing from those who love him. Not at all. So James says, abstain from the world's view of, of sex and, and, and abstain from that sexual immorality. And then finally this. And abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. These two go together. When you strangle an animal, the, animal, the, the blood remains in the animal and um, if, if he says abstain from the blood, he says whether, whether you drain the, the blood and consume it or consume it in the animal, he says abstain from the blood. Now, understand the, the science of the day. The Greeks agreed with the Jews on this point. The life is in the blood. Now, we'll let hematologists talk about it today, but basically this understanding, the life is in the blood. And life belongs to God. It is his creation, he owns it, and you don't take it from him. And that's why the Jews were told back in the book of Leviticus, they said, do not consume the blood. Do not consume an animal that has the blood in it. Because the life is in the blood and the life belongs to God. That's why in the sacrificial system, when the blood was drained from the, uh, from the uh, sacrificial animal, that blood was poured out on the altar. Because it was the offering of the life as a substitute that was being poured out. The life belongs to God. I don't think we're stretching things too much to see that James is saying here, your view of the value of life must be determined by who God is, not by the whim of your culture and society. I mean, that was a world back then, it was a world that held life pretty cheaply, especially if you were defenseless especially if you were a little person, especially if you could not defend yourself. There was nobody to look out for you. We live in a world today that needs to hear this. We need to honor the sanctity of life. And once we understand that the life belongs to God and that life is sacred, you know, we're asking the question, what is your life worth? What is it worth? What is the value of your life. 
You see, once you, once you start to understand the, the holiness of life and the sanctity of life, it starts to affect a, a, a lot of areas of our life. And it's, it, it, it is a, a question, it, it, it affects how we view abortion and why we oppose abortion. But it also talks about euthanasia, and it talks about the death penalty, and it talks about how we view those who are oppressed, and it talks about how we view those who are being manipulated by, by the powerful because they are weak. The honoring of life pervades every area and aspect of our thinking. And James said, I don't want you imprisoned to the world and to the culture on this matter. I want you in line with Jesus Christ. Because what is your value? What is your life worth? God said, your life is worth the blood of Jesus Christ. He poured out his blood for you and brought us into an eternal relationship with the Father through the shed blood of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know, check me on this. I don't think that's a small thing. I think that's like a major thing. And James is saying, if you want to understand what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be tied into how God views, how God views the, the worth of life and how God is the owner of all life, yours, your neighbors, your friends, your family, and all of that. So when, when James says, says here's, here's what I'm going to give you. It's not like I'm going to say, no other burden, take away the law, and then I'll sneak in the kosher laws. He says, no, here, here's what it is. I'm writing to you that you get straight on what your life is about. It's about the glory of God. That you get straight on what life should become. It should become just like Jesus. And I want you to be sure that you understand what your life is worth. It's worth the blood of Jesus. And that'll redefine your whole life. That'll reshape your whole life. So I want to ask you, are you chasing modernity? Are you trying to be like the world? Are you, are you taking your cues from the culture around you? Or are you looking for eternity? Are you looking to what God has designed for your life? Because those are radically different. Radically different. I'd like to ask you this week, you know, just right now, think of a time this week when you're just going to sit down and you're going to look at your life and you're going to say, okay, what in my life comes from the world and what comes from Jesus? Now, what, what is it that I do that I'm chasing? that I got from the world and I didn't get it from Jesus. This mad scramble for money, sex, and power. This, this, this insane notion that I've got to do certain things or look a certain way or act a certain way so the world will accept me and that's the only way I'm, I'm a worthwhile human being. Or am I looking to Jesus Christ to give me the, the confidence and the hope and the joy that God is doing a great work in my life? Would you pick just a moment this week just sit down and think about that. What in my life comes from the culture? What in my life comes from Christ? Get rid of the one, hang on to the other. Can you do that? Because we were created for the glory of God. We couldn't live up to that, so he sent his son to bring us out of the darkness into the light that our lives might be lived for the glory of the Father. And as we are unable to live this life, he gives us the Holy Spirit the power, the resources, the direction, the wisdom that we might honor and please God so that our lives would show who Christ is, not just reflect our culture. I think today has been a really fine worship service today. I want to thank the choir. 
thank John. Uh, but I want to thank you guys for singing. Um, just what a ministry. What a ministry. Uh, someone standing next to you, they, they didn't hear the notes off key. They heard a brother or a sister who's in love with Jesus. And I just want to thank you for that. Hope you have a great day tomorrow, Independence Day. Remember, freedom comes from God. And we need to thank him and give him the glory for it, all right? Let's pray together. And Father, I'm so grateful and thankful to you that having given us the Savior, you give us the Spirit to live lives that reflect the Savior. I thank you that we are not shackled and chained any longer to our culture, to chasing the whim and the whimsy of, 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 of the latest fad and fashion, but Father, you have set us free. I pray for the folks in this room. Give to each one the joy of living for Christ, to each one the courage and the strength to be faithful and obedient in all things. And Father, I pray that you would do this so that you would be glorified all in Jesus' name. Amen.